What we've been doing the last couple of weeks after doing a longer series on Genesis is just kind of talking about a couple of topics that I thought were relevant at Stanford. This week what we're talking about is friendship. Next week what we're going to talk about is actually beauty. Um, It'll be interesting. I think you'll enjoy it. But I wanted to start tonight um, and kind of throwing out these two thoughts before I just read a couple of passages and then we're going to talk about this idea. Um, And I think these two questions are worth contemplating. Uh, It's actually worth thinking about how much you maybe think different versions of these questions. And I just want to kind of throw them out there. The first thing is this. If your primary kind of diagnostic question about the state of your own life, your own experience right now, um, the primary diagnostic question is kind of how am I measuring up as a person? I want to suggest that friendship is going to be very hard for you. If that's the primary way you kind of diagnose your life is some version of self-examination and wondering, you know, how am I grading out as a person? Um, that's going to mean friendship's going to be very difficult, very hard to come by for you. Uh, because what that reveals, it reveals what you're caught up by, which is yourself. It's very hard to have friendships if that's the thing you're captured by and caught up by, which is yourself. Secondly, if your primary diagnostic question about friendship is some version of how am I benefiting from this or what do I get out of this or where does this serve me, I want to also suggest that real, rich, and true friendship is going to be virtually absent. If you only ever consider your benefit inside of friendship, then it's not friendship at all. And it's precisely because we actually all live in these two postures and live and live out some version of these two diagnostic questions all the time that we want to talk about friendship tonight. We're all wondering, how am I grading out as a person? That's a barrier to friendship. And we're all looking at friendships and thinking, how am I benefiting from that? And that's a barrier to real friendship. So with that in mind, I'm going to read these verses, uh, and then we're going to just look biblically at the topic of friendship. This is from Ecclesiastes 4.9. Verses maybe many of you are familiar with. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. From Proverbs 27, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs seventeen nine. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And lastly, from John 15, um, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do it, I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and make your, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom it has about friendship. And I pray now that... Uh, you would attend to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit be with us. For us to learn these kinds of things, um, we can't simply mentally digest them. You have to take them down into our hearts and challenge, 
challenge us in a deep way. So I pray that you would do that with your word now. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, the reason we're talking about friendship is because I've only been at Stanford for almost two quarters now. And this is one of the things I've talked about with y'all individually more consistently than anything else. And so I just felt the need. It was something it was very pressing to talk about. Uh, when I hang out with y'all one-on-one, which I love to do and Elizabeth loves to do and Katie loves to do, um, loneliness is a constant topic of conversation. Um, you know, and, and I think what happens is this, and everybody's recounted the same freshman experience, and even the freshmen now, y'all have already seen this pattern, is that, and, and these are good things, they're not altogether bad, but they're slightly kind of insufficient, is at the outset of your freshman year, there's a ton going on, right? And there's a lot of activity within your dorm, within student clubs, you're signing up for all these things that you think you're going to do, and... Um, and find out at some point during your freshman year you can't do all of them, but you're around a lot of people and there's a lot of social activity. But you realize that friendships aren't necessarily forming, that social activity does not equal friendship. And that's what you feel at first with that first burst of energy and it's fun, it's good, and there's nothing wrong with it, but at some point you realize social activity does not necessarily imply friendship. And so there's just a lot of loneliness in this place. Uh, there's loneliness everywhere, but I think it's, it's particularly unique and kind of striking at Stanford. And in some ways, friendship is kind of like the 4.0 GPA. And that it's one of those things that we think everybody else in the room has, but nobody actually has. Now, there might be a couple of y'all that have a 4.0. <laughs> we don't want to be friends with y'all. But, um, but really, it's the thing. Everybody in here is like, carry in there whatever your GPA is and you think 80% of the class has or 80% of the room has a 4.0. And it's just not true. And friendship's the same way. Everybody's in here carrying some version of loneliness and you look around and you think, oh, they're comfortable here. They found a place at Stanford. They have deep friends. And you think you're the only one who doesn't. And that's actually all of us. We want friends, but we're actually stunted and we don't know how to find friendship um, we, there may be a lot of social activity in our life. We might have study groups. We might laugh a lot with people. We might have things to do with people. But that doesn't mean that you have friendship in the sense we're going to talk about it tonight. I don't think I have to make this argument tonight um, at any time, but <coughs> Facebook doesn't really teach us anything about friendship. I don't think I have to go into a discourse about that. Um, I think we're all on the same page. Nothing wrong with Facebook, but, you know, friendship is more than sending an electronic request. Um, uh, Because real friendship and what what we long for, because we have a lot, there's a lot of social activity. Um, The kind we're going to talk about tonight is hard to come by. And you won't have many of these kind of friends. Not just now, but in life. The kind of friendship we want to talk about tonight um, is rich and sweet. And and the nature of this kind of friendship is that you can't have very many of them. Because it's this very unique kind of relationship. And so um, they're hard to come by. And they take a little bit of time to build. Um, and, and before I go into it, I want to say one last thing that I've kind of said several times in several different ways. But I want to address it to the issue of friendship. Is um, We all think that to add to the things in my life in the areas where we're lacking, you know, they're, they're the corners of your life you're shoring up, right? Whatever it is, your spiritual life, 
your school life, your internal peace, anxiety, whatever it is, but also friendship. You're just kind of, we're all trying to shore that up too, figure it out, right? And we all think that to inculcate, to bring these things into our lives, we just have to discipline ourselves and alter some practices. That's what we always want, right? Here's how I shore up the school part of me. Here's how I shore up the spiritual part of me. Here's how I shore up the emotional part of me. Here's how I shore up the friendship part of me. And we think the solution is to discipline ourselves to alter some practices. And there are some times in life, and there are a couple of things in which the answer really is, you know what, I just have to do X better. You know, I just got to work a little bit harder, more consistently. There's sometimes a limited number of times in life where that's really the solution. The more meaningful changes that have to take place in life, the, the things that are important that need to change, they'd never have to do with scheduling or effort. But the psychological and the emotional and the spiritual and the relational center of being that is you as a person for healing and for blessedness to come to the center of who you are, you just can't expect the process to be easy or superficial. It's not going to be easy or superficial. Encountering the gospel is encountering something very intrusive. Jesus, if you choose to do business with him, is going to be deeply intrusive. He's going to the heart of who you are and he's going to challenge the things at the heart of who you are. And if you want at least one indicator of knowing that this thing called Christianity and God are challenging you and are really doing business with you, if you want to know one sign that it's going to the center of who you are, is this, at times it will physically affect you. And I mean that in a very simple way. You'll know... (coughs) at the times when Jesus is doing business with you, because you'll realize he's going to something deep inside of you and saying, that you have to deal with, and we can't pretend that's not an issue anymore. And it, ner- it unnerves you. You feel uncomfortable about it. That's how far and how deep Jesus goes. He challenges us. He's intrusive. And so when the gospel is breaking in, it challenges those deepest commitments, the ones that we actually try to pretend aren't even deepest commitments, that they're so essential to who we are that they can't really be challenged. But what he offers in return is gracious, life-altering, eternal, hope-giving, healing, and redemption. And as long as you hold this Christianity thing out on the surface of your life, then this is what you can expect. You can expect to continue to be confused by the Bible and the preaching of the Word, and you're going to feel like you hear a bunch of appealing things, but you never experience the richness of what's promised. That's what your experience of being around Christian stuff will be if you don't let it challenge you deeply. You'll hear a bunch of good things that you like but you never really richly experience. And I say that tonight, even though it applies every time we talk about the Bible, because friendship in the way that we're going to talk about it can only come if you actually let these ideas challenge you very deeply. And you let Jesus challenge you deeply. And if you're not careful, then one of two things will happen. Either A... You're going to feel sorry for yourself and kind of drown in pity of like, that sounds great, but I'm in a place where nothing can really good can happen for me. Or B, you'll be content to be surrounded by people and a lot of social activity, but you're not going to have friends that go through the trenches of life with you. That we, you can easily settle into being around a lot of people and never really addressing the deep loneliness that we have. And the Bible speaks to it elsewhere. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions can still come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In other words, what you can very easily settle for is a life of relationships that's a mile wide and an inch deep. 
So tonight we're going to talk about um, the first two points. The third point was from last week. I forgot to delete it. Um, the features of friendship and the foundation of friendship. And I hope you all appreciate how much effort I put into these sermon titles. I never hear anybody comment about them, but I think they're particularly witty. Um, friends, the topic, not the TV show. Not that this show's bad. It was okay. Not great. Just okay. Um, but we won't go there. Um, so tonight I want to talk about what friendship looks like and how you get it. And the first thing is this. We're going to jump right in. The features of friendship. The first one is vulnerability. And we actually see this in these passages in Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and doesn't have anybody else to lift him up. If two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is quickly broken. What's being depicted here is not simply friends supporting each other. It's actually friends being involved in the places of deep need in their lives. He's talking about scenarios of deep stress and anxiety, right? These are metaphors for the brokenness and the hard parts of life in which there are a dozen. I mean, there are hundreds. So to be kept warm, to be kept, to be kept warm, to be kept from falling, to be held together, your friends have to know that you're falling apart. They have to be in the places where you are cold and in the places where you are falling, which means they know you. Is this a risk? Absolutely. It absolutely is a risk. There's no promise here that if you reveal who you are to certain people who you're becoming your friends, that you might not get hurt in the process. You really might get hurt in the process. There's no promise that that won't happen. And you might have real-life reasons and experiences for why you want to hold up and hold those parts away from people, for keeping the parts of you in your life that are falling apart, um, where you feel broken, where you're confused, where you're anxious, keeping them away from everybody, right? Maybe you feel the darkness in your life is too dark, right? If friends knew about the abuse that had happened in your life, if friends knew about the prolonged addiction that's in your life, if friends knew the way you really thought about things, the way you thought about yourself, the way you thought about life, right? They couldn't bear it. Maybe you think that the hard parts of your life are too hard for anyone to walk through with you, that they just wouldn't understand. Maybe your pride won't let you be known, right? It's too shameful. You have this reputation and it'll fall apart once people know who you are. The Bible always confronts the idols of every culture, wherever it goes. And what this particularly confronts in this place is this. It flies right in the face of self-sufficiency. The Bible from the beginning of Genesis all the way through always says you are made to feel human and fully alive inside of relationships. And in fact, there's no such thing as maturity outside of relationships. There's no such thing as maturity outside of relationships. You can't do life on your own. And you can't do it hiding the hardest parts of your life. That's the place where friendship is most needed, is in the hardest parts. Right? And if we had these parts, they consume us. Because they thrive. The hardest things in life will thrive and grow stronger the longer we keep them in darkness and in secrecy. And so they'll consume us. They'll consume even Stanford students who think that they can beat the world. 
Because by definition, as a human made to be in community and built up with one another, from beginning to the end of Scripture, God's saying, you, I made you purposely to lack the tools of self-sufficiency. So it's a lie that our pride is shouting to us right now, as you're thinking about the things that you can't tell anybody, that is your pride shouting at you when it's saying, you can't tell anybody this. You can't ask anybody to go into this area of your life with you. This is what C.S. Lewis says about it. To love at all is to be vulnerable. If you love anything, your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, then you must give it no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, emotionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will actually become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. It's precisely in secrecy and in darkness that the junk of your life is going to be found. The index of closeness and of intimacy and of care and of health of a friendship is not how much you happen to like or even enjoy the person. It has very little to do with whether or not your friendship's healthy. It's actually how much you can be honest with each other about your hopes, about your insecurities and your fears, about your angers and your struggles and your history and your stories. Vulnerable friendship is one of the tools God's given you to battle the hard parts of your life. Do your friends know where you're cold? Do your friends know where you've fallen and where you don't have strength? Because they can't love you until they know your pain. They can't love you until they know your pain. Friendship is only friendship if you've allowed them to really know you, which means you tell them the truth about you. Which leads to the second point. It's both vulnerability, but it's also truth. So the first point is, it's not friendship unless your friends, unless you tell them the truth about you. It's also not friendship if you can't tell them the truth about them. It goes both ways. Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There's this notion that has the appearance of kindness or sensitivity that says, if you care about somebody, then you won't call them an idiot when they're being an idiot. Right? And this is the truth, and we always want to try to speak the truth in love in RUF. But the reality is that sometimes the truth in love is not necessarily the truth with like a soft voice and a bunch of qualifying statements to try to take the same way. Sometimes the truth in love is going to be very direct and clear and stark terms, because that's what we need. Okay, and this is the reality. Everybody in here has had really stupid thoughts and idiotic thoughts and done stupid things and said stupid things. Everybody, including me, including Elizabeth, right? Friends tell friends when they think like or talk like or act like an idiot. I'm not talking about intentionally hurting somebody's feelings because you're angry with them. I'm talking about a friend. <laughs> Some people were like, oh, right. I'm talking about a friend who cares for someone enough to tell them the truth and what they need to hear. And there's no better illustration for this than Chuck Klosterman, who you all need to read after you read the Bible. Um, and he makes this comment talking about men wearing leather pants. This is going somewhere. Here's the thing about the leather pants. They give me the heebie-jeebies. And the reason they make me nervous is because successfully wearing leather pants is indisputable proof that you have no friends. 
It's not always true for women, but it's completely true for men. If you're a man and you're wearing a pair of leather pants, is anybody wearing leather pants here tonight? Okay. At this very moment, and everyone around you seems completely cool with that reality, I'm afraid I have some bad news. You will die alone. For decades, leather pants have been essential to rock and roll, yet every man who's ever worn them has faced an existence of utter loneliness. Elvis Presley wore leather pants and was surrounded by sycophants and opportunists. Jim Morrison wore leather pants and was surrounded by drug dealers and hippies. Sebastian Bach wore leather pants and was surrounded by Skid Row. If you have the ability to effectively wear leather pants in public, you immediately have the potential to become a cultural icon, but you can't have friends. Think of your closest male friend. It's good mental exercise right here. Think of your closest male friend. Now imagine if you wore leather pants. Can you foresee, foresee any scenario where you wouldn't mock him until he cried? As a friend, that's pretty much your singular vocation. If there was going to be a nuclear war and the missiles of obliteration were swooping down from the pre-apocalyptic sky and for some reason I only had 10 minutes to see my best friend for the final time and my friend for some reason showed up to Armageddon wearing leather pants, those pants are the only thing I would talk about. <laughs> friends tell friends the truth. Do you follow that? Does anybody have a lot of guys have a lot of leather pants and feel all of a sudden really lonely? I hope I didn't offend anybody needlessly. But um, it's a witty way of displaying friends tell friends the truth, even if it's hard. And the inability to tell the truth reveals one thing, that you actually don't care about them in and of themselves. Rather, you care about them in as much they benefit you. Right? Because the thought is this. The thought that prevents us from telling people hard things about themselves is if I offend them, they won't like me and I don't like being not liked. That's it. That's why we don't tell people hard things. If I offend them, then they're not going to like me, and I don't like to be not liked. Which means, of course, you don't care about them. The friendship's about you. It's a parasitic relationship. This is what it means. Friends will actually be so for you that they will be against you for you. They'll be so for you that they're willing to be against you for you. If your friends have never been against you, then I'm not sure they're good friends. It's a shallow friendship. If you want to get deep and close fast in a friendship, call your friends out on legitimate things. Call your friends out. Um, my, my dad's really one of my closest friends. And when I first started doing RUF at South Carolina, um, he, he listened to all my sermons and he'd we'd talk about him the next day and he'd only have positive things to, that, to say for the first couple of months. And his positive things were, were mildly encouraging and all that kind of stuff. But what he said to me, the things he had to say to me once he started criticizing me were so much richer. As soon as he could tell me I made mistakes or I preached poorly, you know what? I knew he loved me. And actually all the encouragement he gave to me after that so much more encouraging because it was so it felt so much more genuine. I needed his criticism for us to become closer, for his words to be more. Because then I knew he was telling me the truth. He was actually willing to be against me for me. Friends will actually this is the great thing about this is one of the ironic things about friends. Friends will actually put the friendship on the line for the truth, for each other. Do you tell your friends the truth about them? Do you tell the truth about yourself? Secondly, do you tell them the truth about them? Thirdly, 
forgiveness is at the heart of friendship. Proverbs 17.9, Whoever covers him over an offense seeks love, but he who repeats the matter, who makes it a constant part of the life of the friendship, separates close friends. Again, there's... I hope none of you have this like in your quotes on Facebook or something, but you might have heard this before. True love means never having to say you're sorry. That's just like sentimental bullcrap. That's actually a lie and does the exact opposite of what it says. Is that blunt enough? Was that clear? Um, Here's what lies at the center of every marriage and friendship that's failed. Never saying you're sorry. Go talk to anybody who's been divorced. What lies at the heart of their divorce is never saying you're sorry. You know what lies at the center of friendships and of marriages that go on and become rich? Saying I'm sorry a lot. Vile selfishness and superficial relationships mean never having to say you're sorry. Rich friendship is saying I'm sorry a lot and and, and when you say I'm sorry, it's met with forgiveness over and over again. Forgiveness is not the hardest or the sourest part of friendship. It's actually the opposite. It will be the richest and the sweetest part of friendship. It will be the most important and intimate part of true friendship. I mean, forgiveness is the best thing you'll, be, you'll ever experience. And, and just real briefly, I'll give you a couple aspects of it, of what real forgiveness looks like. The first thing is this. Real forgiveness recognizes, offensive, uh, recognizes offenses specifically. There's some value in general forgiveness. I just need Elizabeth's forgiveness for who I am as a husband and a father. But you know what's richer? It's when I get forgiveness for her over specific offenses. When I say, Elizabeth, I was gone too long on Saturday. You had to take care of the girls all alone by yourself because I was out playing and doing CrossFit. And yes, I was in sin for doing it as long as I did it on Saturday. And I need you to forgive me for that. I don't need general forgiveness. I need that a lot. But man, you know how sweet it is when you can put the specific offense out there and hear her say, I forgive you. Man, don't you want clearance on the specific offenses? So rich forgiveness, man, put it out there. Put the specific offense out there. It's so much richer. Secondly, forgiveness, the person who's doing the forgiving, what they're doing is they're absorbing the offense. They're absorbing the cost of the offense. It is costly to do the work of forgiving. If it doesn't hurt you, it's not forgiveness. That's one of the main things we learn from Jesus' death on the cross, right? Is that forgiveness hurts a lot. Because what you're doing is you're absorbing the pain of the offense and you're relinquishing your right to, to take that pain out and put it back on them. Because you're actually, it's within your rights to do that. So forgiveness is going to hurt. It recognizes specific offenses. It hurts. And here's the other one. Asking for forgiveness and apologizing are not the same thing. And if you don't believe me, just do this. A lot of us, I'm sure, apologize a lot. We're pretty good at apologizing. And there's something to it. It's not all bad. But next time, instead of saying I'm sorry, especially don't, well, there's a right time to say, but you know, we're all getting out of things when we're saying, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, y'all know that you're like deflecting all responsibility. I'm not sorry for anything I did. I'm just sorry that you happen to feel that way over what I did. Anyways, I've, I've used that. I'm sure we've all used that. Instead of saying I'm sorry, ask for forgiveness. And you'll immediately recognize there's a world of difference from saying I'm sorry and will you forgive me. Because when you say will you forgive me, what you've done is you've opened up your life and you've put yourself at the mercy of your friend. 
it's a very vulnerable moment. It's a very intimate moment. And if they forgive you, it's a very rich moment. So much richer than, I'm sorry, hey, that's okay. Ask for forgiveness. It humbles both of you and it enriches the friendship. And then lastly, briefly about forgiveness. The goal of forgiveness, and this is why it costs so much, is actually to stop the spread of sin and evil. That's the goal. It's actually to absorb it in yourself so that it no longer has the ability to perpetuate itself out into the world. And that's why being passive-aggressive, having a slow, kind of low-burning anger, being cold towards somebody, or gossip, all reveal that you actually haven't forgiven your friend because that evil of the sin that's really done to you has now corrupted you and perpetuated itself out into the world, right? Which means forgiveness has never really happened. The sin and the evil didn't stop with you. You didn't absorb it. You actually took and manifested it in different ways out into the world. So that's why all those like subtle ways that we say people are forgiving, but we still make them pay for sin, reveal that we haven't forgiven them. Forgiveness means you absorb the evil of the situation, and it hurts a lot. So friendship means you tell people the truth about yourself, you tell people the truth about them. Forgiveness is going both ways all the time. And lastly, there's sacrifice. A friend is somebody who goes into the trenches with you, who's going to set aside their lives for you, in the places that you need a friend. Uh, when I asked Elizabeth, just briefly thinking about this, I just said, Elizabeth, what does friendship mean? And without hesitating, she said, friend is somebody who has your back. Who has your back? Whose back do you have? And here's the thing about sacrifice. By definition, it does not mean when it's convenient. If it's convenient, it's not sacrifice. That's convenience. That's what that is. Sacrifice, by definition, means when it's not convenient. Because what we want to do is we want to streamline our lives as we pursue our kind of individual mission of being the best possible Britain that I want to be. Right? I have this goal and this life mapped out, and I want to streamline it, and I want to cut away the things that are going to drag me. You know? And one of the things that will always drag you down in your individual mission to be the ex- most excellent version of you is going to be needy friends. And I'm not talking about helping people out with a flat tire or giving them a ride to the airport or paying for a meal when they lost their wallet. Those things are fine, they're good, but they're easy sacrifices they are largely convenient. I'm talking about friends who go through seasons of depression. Seasons. Uh, friends who are in weeks and months, maybe even years of need. A student of mine at uh, USC, his father... Um, had a terminal illness in over a period of about seven years. His whole body just shut down. For the last three or four years, uh, this student, his name was Jake at USC, he took his dad to the toilet for every bowel movement and did everything for his dad. That's friendship. It was years. It was costly. It was really costly. It was intimate. It was awkward. It was hard. He changed his dad's clothes and he took his dad to the bathroom for three years. That's friendship. And I'm more and more convinced that the largest barrier to friendship at Stanford is actually y'all's academic and career goals. Because you have this vision, and you're on a mission, and you have this horizon that you're aiming for, and it's the best possible version of you. And nothing can mess that up worse than a really needy friend over a long period of time. Oh my gosh, that's exhausting. And what you, should, what you might be feeling right now is, 
Okay, that would get in the way of my schoolwork and my social life and my travel plans and my vision and my path for kind of what I'm aiming for in life. And if you feel that tension there, like, okay, because at times all of us have wanted people around us. We wanted to dish out, here's the story about this needy person. Hey, will you tell me it's okay for me to kind of check out of their life a little bit, right? We want somebody else to justify the fact that we want to withdraw from needy people. And if you're thinking right now, especially if you're thinking of somebody specifically and you're thinking, like, if I'm supposed to go into that, it will really mess up just me being the kind of person I need to be at Stanford to be successful. It could really get in the way. If you feel that right now, now you understand sacrifice. Now you actually understand it. That's what friendship is. We want to cut away the things that drag us down, the junk and the mire and the emotions and the time. When it says a cord of three is not easily broken, it's implying that it's close to getting broken for all three of them. That one person had a whole lot of stress and two other people went in there and said, you know what? We'll begin to bear that stress with you. The other two are bearing the load as well. Being friend means you're brought into the need and the stress and the junk. And you're trying... uh, uh, you're, you're going into the parts of life where life is trying to break them, and you're saying, I'll take on that tension too, and I'll let that part of life also try to break me as I stand next to you. Um, a good friend of mine tells a story about a, a pastor, another RUF guy years ago, who went flying with his young son, and um, as they were flying, his son got airsick, and... Uh, he said, Dad, I'm thinking about to throw up and grab the motion sickness bag. This, this is a pretty typical story, nothing crazy here. Son threw up in the bag, closed it up, sealed it up, no mess or anything like that. And he said there was this kind of beautiful moment where we were walking off the jetway and his five-year-old son looked up at him and said, Dad, thanks for catching my vomit. <laughs> Whose vomit will you catch? <laughs> That's the application point. Huh? Seriously. Who's catching your vomit? Do you have somebody? So those are some features, some of the fundamental features of friendship. Secondly, lastly, the foundation of friendship. And here's the frustrating thing. And I really struggled with this the more I thought about it. Um, You can't seek out and get friendship. You can't walk into a place and say, I want friends. How do I go find them? Friendships, you can't seek out and find them. They're discovered. And this is the way C.S. Lewis describes it, and I think he's right. As he says this, Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which others don't share, which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, What? You two? I thought I was the only one. This is what he says. That's why those pathetic people who simply want friends actually can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise in that situation. There will be nothing for the friendship, here's the key, to be about. And friendship has to be about something Those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere 
can have no fellow travelers. What he's saying is this. What knit the early church together was a common vision for the kingdom of God. The good news going to the corners of the earth. The hope of the resurrection. The hope of all things made new again. Friendship is about something. Friendship is not face to face. Friendship is side by side. C.S. Lewis later says, Lovers, they relate face to face. They're drawing life out of one another. And that's good. But friendship, you relate side to side. As two people traveling towards a common goal on the horizon discover you're going there too. Friendship is about a common love. A common mission. And you find out that someone else is going there with you. And the kind of friendship that's described that we talked about earlier with all these elements can only ultimately really mature out of the gospel of grace and the kingdom of God sitting at the heart of who we are, being the thing that we long for on our horizon, being our mission, being the goal, the thing that we're oriented towards in this life. There are other facets to our friendship. Certainly it's more, uh, it's richer than just that, but at the center of it, the redeeming work of Jesus, Christ-likeness, the hope of the resurrection, all of those things will draw people in to these kinds of friendships, ones of vulnerability and truth, of forgiveness and sacrifice. That's why Jesus says in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. Because now you know everything I've heard from my Father. Because now you've been engrafted into my mission, you've been given this common love, this thing, called the gospel or the kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus dies for sinners. And all of a sudden that became central in your life. And that's the thing about which you're orienting your life. And you're realizing there are other people that have oriented their lives around that as well that have found it sweet and are living toward it. That's where these kinds of friendships form. The community of disciples formed around the deep unity they had from having that common vision, a common horizon. And that's where friendship is found. So what do we do about it? I mean, this is the frustrating thing about it. You kind of can't just want friends. And so that's why in some ways I think Matthew 6.33 is the right place to go for finding friendship. It's just where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. This is why we actually kind of teach the same thing in RUF every week. Namely, that there is a king who is full of grace, and forgiveness, and steadfast love. That's why in RUF we're constantly trying to say, do you know that you can be freed from self-obsession and narcissism? You can come and see that the king is good, that he's full of mercy and blessing, that he's worthy of worship. I think if we get captured by that and see that, and you begin to love him, you're going to find friends. And if you're around for a while and you're kind of numbering yourself among these Christians, right? And you find that these people are hard to be friends with, asking, where are the friends that I wanted for me? Like, you came here and you wanted to get around the Christian people and you were looking for the friends that you wanted for me. You're, you're going to have a harder time finding friends. And if you find it hard to find friends among God's people, then the very problem might be that you have little passion for the thing about which they have utmost passion, which is Jesus. Because if you come around Christian people because you want friends, what you're going to find is a group of activities with a bunch of people doing a lot of things. And you might struggle to ever find rich friendship within that group because you're seeking friends. And all the friends in that group aren't seeking friends. 
They're seeking the kingdom of God. And so you're the only one walking around looking for friends. Everybody else is looking up. They're looking on the horizon. They're looking for the healing of the gospel to break into their lives and the community around them, and they're seeking that. So you might spend time together, you might laugh together, but you might see a deeper companionship that you never keep having. Because you can't simply want friends. You have to want the kingdom of God. And so for the sake of friendship, to find Christian friendship, the answer really is we have to repent from our little independent missions and turn back to the Lord Jesus and be captured by that again. That's how friendships are going to happen. So it means we have to stop aiming our life and all its resources at the best version of me that I can make for myself at Stanford. Loving and caring about your own interest is the key to loneliness. You want to know the key to loneliness? It's loving and caring about your own interest. That's how you isolate yourself. But being consumed with a common goal, especially a common goal that is founded in the love of God, I hope that you have found among God's people good friends. Because in your discovery of the King and of His grace and His love, you get transformed in the kind of, into the kind of friend that He's been to you. Because to be this kind of friend, you also to have these kind of friends, you also have to be this kind of friend. And if you simply want to have people be that kind of friend to you, but you don't want to put out on the other end, then you're just a parasite again. Right? This is who Jesus is for you. Jesus is the true friend that's full of truth. When you encounter Scripture, it tells us offensive things about us. Good things and also offensive things about us that are not acceptable and politically incorrect and totally not cool because Jesus is a truth teller and doesn't care about the consequences because He's more for you than even we are. He's even so for us that He's willing to be against us. He's the truth teller. And we're terrified of engaging the truths He tells us about us. And yet when we come to own up to Him, we find out that with Him it's actually a safe place to be known that we can take hold of the truths He's telling us about us and say, yeah, that is me. I didn't want it to be. I'm trying to hide that it was. But you find out He's the truth teller. And when He tells you the truth and you embrace it about yourself and it's so frustrating, you also find out it's so safe to be known by Him. He's also the one who bore our burdens. He doesn't just share our burdens. He actually takes them away. He takes on our sin and selfishness and goes to the cross and bears the weight of punishment for it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He's the one who forgives. He absorbs the pain and the evil and the junk that we've brought into this world. And He's the one that sticks closer than a brother. His love is not conditioned on circumstances. He doesn't jet when things get messy. His steadfast love endures forever. To be a good friend, you have to let the friendship of Jesus transform you. And you know what happens in that process? You'll find that maybe in this room and other areas on campus, that there are people who like you, who feel lonely, that they're the only one trying to work out this thing of following Christ, who are the only people, feel like they're the only people trying to work out what it means to be a servant instead of a consumer, who are working out what it means to battle sin, how to study well, how to be a good friend. And you'll find out that there are other people who also thought they were the only one. And you realize that y'all are laboring for the same thing. And you bump shoulders with them because they're on the same path. And you realize you too. And that's where friendship starts. Let's pray.